Are we going to say mesothermal? Are we going to say mesothermal? It's unclear, but I feel like uh, we I should say be... meso, but oh, meso is fine. Interesting. interesting. Mesothermal or mesothermal? Meso I don't know. I probably I don't... switch in between. I think I switch in. You know what? Then we'll keep that very real. We'll switch in between. We'll do what feels right. Hi, fellow geochemists and geochemistry enthusiasts. Welcome to Geochemist Tea, the only podcast for people who love geochemistry with a side of tea. Our mission is to inspire aspiring geochemists and to introduce our listeners to niche geochemistry topics. I'm your host, Sam Sturr, and this month we're talking with Jeff Bigelow about geochemical controls on gold mineralization at a mesothermal gold deposit in Australia. Jeff Bigelow is the principal geochemist at Newmont. Jeff, welcome to Geochemist Tea. It's always a good sign when you're chuckling already. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> right. We've been talking about mesothermal, mesothermal. Jeff and I, we don't understand what our nationalities are anymore. It's going to go in and out. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, but we'll switch between. Yeah. Yeah, just to cater to the whole audience. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, Jeff, I can't pinpoint the exact time that we met, but I think primarily I probably overwhelmed you with my enthusiasm for spectral geology on one of our projects that we did together. But as for you, Jeff, after your your bachelor's honors degree, you've had a long career with Newmont, starting first as a mine geologist and then getting into exploration geology before then crossing over into being part of their geochemistry division. Could you talk about how you got into geochemistry in general and then how you were able to transition into a major mining company's geochemistry division and perhaps honestly a dream for some of our listeners? Oh, wow. All right. That's a lot so, I know. <laughs> yeah. Tell us. Well, I did my, so I first studied geology at Acadia University in Nova Scotia, Canada, and there that's where I met Cliff Stanley. So I'm pretty sure most of your listeners would, would know Cliff pretty well. His reputation precedes himself, but Indeed. those who don't, he's avid uh, geochemist and mathematical geologist, and his uh, passion for geochemistry was contagious. And it was during my third year at um, Acadia studying under Cliff that on the side, well, when he wasn't teaching at Acadia, he was consulting for, for industry. And uh, Newmont in Australia, uh, it was Nigel Radford, who was the chief geochemist for the region at the time, reached out to Cliff about a consulting project, specifically about the Tanami. This would have been around 2003, 2004. And uh, they had a couple questions about what they thought might be a control on the distribution of coarse gold mineralization at the Tanami, and they wanted to pay Cliff to have a look at it. And Cliff thought this looked more like a good honors project rather than a consulting gig. And he said, I know just the guy. And he, okay. he let me know. Yep. And I organized a plane ticket and went straight from Nova Scotia, Canada to the middle of the Tanami Desert to collect my samples and 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 yeah I guess do do the honors project that uh, we'll we'll discuss later on so that that was my foothold into geochemistry and Newmont which sort of happened at, at the same time after I'd finished my sampling at, at site so I had arrived there it would have been around May or June uh, in 2004 and it, it was funny because that was the time when geologists were in pretty high demand and there was a bit of a boom going on and the Tanami was a lot smaller operation back then. It was just a, a dirt airstrip and it was a pretty sketchy plane that flew from Alice Springs up to the Tanami. It was just like a single prop engine thing. And I remember I was shell-shocked going straight from Canada, straight to the Tanami Desert. I'd never been to Australia before even Was you know, it travels. Canada in winter or Canada in summer? Or did it, it not was matter? <laughs> it was just coming out of winter. So it would have been the end of May, start of June. Okay. So coming into the summer, but, you know, you can get snow on Mother's Day in Nova Scotia. So it wasn't <laughs> like the, the depths of winters, but yeah, it was enough of a climate change to be a bit of a shock. And just the culture shock, of course, just the accents, which I've gotten used to now 20 years later, but you know, it's just <laughs> didn't understand what anyone was saying. And anyways, landed at this mine site, got off the plane with my bag and the propellers still spinning and there's red dust blowing everywhere. And this guy in high vis holding onto his hard hat uh, waddles up to me and he says, are you Jeff? 
said, yeah. He says, do you have an Australian tax file number? I said, no, <laughs> get one. And that, that was my interview into Newmont. I've been an employee ever since. Oh and my so, God. yeah. So I had it pretty easy and it was great. They trained me up. I was mapping, backs mapping underground, logging, production core, just learning the ropes and doing drill rig inspections, all that stuff. And they put me on a two-in-one roster. So I was on site for two weeks and on my week off, I just traveled around Australia backpacking, seeing the sites and all of that. And after a few weeks, uh, Cliff Stanley and Nigel Radford showed up to site to see how it was going with my sampling. And I hadn't done anything at that. It was probably five weeks into the project. And they said, and I had a job, I had a full-time job. I was excited. And they said, no, you have to finish your degree. And I said, okay. So I collected my samples and mailed them back to Canada and finished my degree. But I was encouraged by Newmont. Well, once you finish, you'll have a job waiting back here in Australia. So just let us know. And so after I finished my writing and it was my final exam on my final day of finishing my undergrad. I bought a plane ticket to go to Australia the same day as my final exam. So I'm in the exam hall with my bag next to me at the table, writing my exam with a plane ticket in my pocket. And this I'm just wild. writing and writing <laughs> and then hand in my exam, grab my bag and just go straight to the airport and didn't look back. And that was you know, 2005. I didn't go straight back to the Tanami. They had another opportunity. We had a, a low sulfidation epithermal deposit in northern Queensland called Pajingo. Cool. And I was there for two years. I, uh, I was underground as a production geologist. And then I moved to near mine exploration. And before I went on to join the generative exploration team, which uh, at that time uh, I was moved down to Orange in New South Wales. We had a joint venture with Alkane Resources. It was called the Orange District Exploration JV. And together we made a, a discovery, which was the McPhillamies. No big deal. Whatever. I'm Jeff. <laughs> no, it was a team effort. And I was probably the most junior guy uh, on the team. So if anything, I was weighing them down rather than contributing much. But, you know, I, I learned lots from that. And uh, no, that was a fun, fun time in my life and early in the career. But I saw that... You know, McPhillamy's really wasn't shaping up strategically to be in aligning to what Newmont wanted. And so the writing was on the wall for that. So I was looking for what my next step in the career is. And I went back to, to Nigel. And I always had, a, even though I was a uh, mine geologist and exploration geologist, I always had a knack for geochemistry because I was basically a, a disciple of Cliff Stanley. And all I was going to say disciple because yeah. he doesn't have yeah. students. He has disciples. Exactly. No, that's and he, that's not Cliff's fault. That's just <laughs> that's just the way it happens. As I said, his passion is is contagious. And I and that's the best way to describe Cliff. He's passionate. Once once he gets on a roll talking about something. Yeah, you, you can tell that he's all in. Right. So, yeah, I, I expressed interest in joining the Newmont's global support geochemistry specialist team. And Nigel at that stage was looking at retiring relatively soon. And I think he thought I was a good fit to be a succession plan. And so that's how I got into the geochemistry group. So I moved across from Orange to Perth in 2012, and I've been here for the last 12 years or so doing a global support as an exploration geochemist. During that time, I had a few people look after that team, folks like Owen Lavin and Mary Doherty, and now it's Simon Marshall, and they've all been fantastic leaders and managers. And under Mary, she actually supported me doing a master's in isotope geochemistry out of Queens with Dan Leighton Matthews, and that's where I specialized into applied geochemistry for exploration. So that's my background and how I became a geochemist from a nobody. There was a, a lot of just knowing the right people and being in the right places and creating opportunities, but it was a fun journey. I've listened to now like well over 20 different stories, and the common thread is always making your own opportunities. I think that some people could say, oh my God, look, he had it so easy. But at the same time, at each point, there was always these different decision points, right? You could have not gotten on that flight, right? Because you could have been like, oh, it'd be easier to stay with my family in Canada or something like that. But you mm -hmm. kept taking these opportunities. I'm not trying to build you up. I'm just trying to build up those listeners just so that they know that as long as you're willing to open that space and always be your own best advocate, I think that you could probably achieve great things. So. Yeah, you, know, you, you make your own luck, I guess. Create your own opportunities. Indeed. 
I think we've really probably answered this, but do you have any other advice for listeners out there that want to do something similar to what you've done? Just networking is huge. So getting out there, meeting people, something that pre-pandemic that Newmont was involved with was reaching out to universities and trying to create sort of opportunities for students to do summer vacation work or just do field work when they weren't studying good it was fully paid so they gave them a summer job also exposure to the industry and so they understand what what the gigs like but it also gave us an opportunity to see who the high flyers might be and have early access to talent because enrollments are down uh, mining in general or geology in general is going out of fashion and so it's hard to there's the the pool is is quite competitive so anything that we can do to get early access to to people and and high potential talent the better but from the students point of view yeah just it's that networking piece be out there and shout from the hills now that jeff has introduced himself now he's somebody that you can run up to at the next <laughs> conference and say hey <laughs> i'm a student looking for a job <laughs> I'm a proud wallflower at the conferences. You'll usually see me just fading into the shadows. <laughs> just a little shy, but that's why we have to be a little bit more, maybe not aggressive is not the right word, but you know, just pull it out of them. Jeff can be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of fun, it is now tea time. So I want to thank you, first of all, for sharing your journey with us, but kettle's hot, please spill. What have you brought us? Ah, all right. So this is a little goss of office not so much office politics, but some interesting things it. that happened. Uh, so, so it would have been at around the start of the pandemic and everyone started working from home and getting super lonely. And there was a group <laughs> of us from work who uh, decided that we would get together virtually and play Dungeons and Dragons online. So this would have been <laughs> 2020. And so it became who like a weekly... was the Dungeon Master is well, the question. <laughs> dungeon master now is yours truly so i I've oh been, my god <laughs> i've been dming a campaign for over two years now and we now meet face to face every sunday religiously and it's a diverse group of people from work who uh includes senior managers all the way down to you know their geologists and and yeah every, everyone gets together and role plays these crazy fantasy characters and then you get back to, to the office and it's just like it never happened it's like fight club like you do not talk about dungeons and dragons like that's rule number one and two and three and then every sunday the gloves come off and yeah we <laughs> and so, so yeah this is the and no, I, sorry, but this is like serious stuff. Like we, we, like oh, it's heard. every Sunday night. Right? This is yeah. this is serious. Heard. I'm here with you. I'm not asking for names, but just how does this come up casually in conversation? That hey, do you want to start? I don't know what they're called. That do you want to start a session? What do you call these things? Like, how do you start that? You talk senior management to the lowliest member of Newmont. How yeah. does it start? It's well, it started off with a, a relatively small core group, and then the rumor mill oh. seeps out, and then it's like this someone's a little bit embarrassed to approach you in the kitchen at in the office, but they're like, So I heard you do this thing on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I get in on this? Right? So, oh my god, there so, could be nothing more perfect, guys. Yeah, he's red. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. So, anyways. Yeah. I, I didn't start off being the, the dungeon master. It was someone else. And we've gone through, we call them campaigns, right? So because they're, campaign, they yes. take multiple weeks or months. And in fact, the, our current campaign has been running for nearly two years now. So yeah, it's an investment, but that's the dirty, well, not the dirty, but the, the juicy tea from that I got to share. So I cannot hear. So wallflower at a conference, but dungeon master on Sundays. I love it. That's right. <laughs> oh my God. That's the tea. This is to all of our listeners. This is not what I thought I was getting. I can't. This is like in the top cheese. This Juan Carlos Ordonez with his, his acting career. Those. Wow. Thank you so much, Jeff, for this. I'll let it land there. Let it lie. That's incredible. <laughs> We'll talk more about this later. <laughs> well, 
you seem intrigued, so I wouldn't be surprised if you're looking for an invite. Oh my God, is this part virtual? I've never done a campaign before, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh my God. So I might be interested. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Getting this show back on the road. That said, for our GeoChem topic then, uh, we looked at the results of your uh, honors thesis research that you presented to the um, Association of Applied Geochemistry's biannual conference, the IAGS International yeah, no. <laughs> Applied Geochemistry Symposium, entitled Geochemical Controls on a Very Coarse Grain Gold Mineralization Within Sheeted Quartz Veins at the Mesothermal Cali Deposit, Dead Bullock Soak, Northern Territory, Australia. So to a starter conversation, could you just summarize the talk for our listeners? Yeah. Did I use very in the title? Jeez, that's very you unprofessional very. of me. Jeez. <laughs> so embarrassing. <laughs> so You're young. I know. But yeah. Anyways, yeah, but to summarize the talk, I guess I have to give credit to Justin Gum. So if you, many of your listeners might know, know Justin, he's a consulting geochemist now with Metalzoic, but long career, different companies from South Australia. When we speak about the Tanami, some terminology here. So there's a few deposits in the region. The, the study itself is on the Cali deposit, which is part of the Dead Bullock Soak sort of gold camp, which is more broad and which is separate to the granites mine. And so I'll use the term Dead Bullock Soak or Cali interchangeably. And just to confuse you even more, for Dead Bullock Soak, I might say DBS because that's love everyone that. loves a good, yeah. So we have yeah, DBS, Cali. Them, yeah. Uh -huh. Why not? Now, which is in the Tanami region, but there's a separate sort of string of deposits that's called the the Tanami, the Tanami mine, and which is different to the to Cali. So I just wanted to clarify when I say Tanami, different mineral, different mineralization as well, or just different system. Different everything. So different it's everything. it's ge geographically different place, different host rock, different style. It's gold, but and it's not a Newmont asset, but. I'll just be talking about Cali, which is what I did my honors on. So going back to Justin, back in the 90s, he was straight out of university. He was with a company called North Flinders. And North Flinders were the folks who discovered um, the Cali ore body. And uh, so this would have been late 80s, early 90s. And they were characterizing Cali. And Justin had written just a memo, just a little short one paragraph um, observation that he saw in when he was logging core is that there's one particular stratigraphic unit. So the deposit is hosted in turbidite sequence. So just layer cake stratigraphy. There's one unit in there that is particularly well mineralized that they call the Cali laminated beds. The, and the Cali laminated beds is really easy to identify visually. It's a siltstone but it's characterized by having these, they call them twin laminations. So you'll see these layers every once in a while that are these twin laminations that he recognized as having these coarse grained layers that make up the, the laminations. And they seem to be made up of quartz and titanium mineral phases. So things like rutiles or titanites or ilmenites or whatever, it was just an observation. And his observation in this memo is that every time he saw one of these twin laminations or one of these coarse grained layers intersect a quartz vein, always got coarse gold in the vein. So a big nugget in, in, in the vein every time. And it wasn't until 10, 12 years later that Nigel Radford, after North Flinders became Normandy and Normandy merged with Newmont, and then Nigel was going through some of these old uh, reports and he saw this comment from Justin and he investigated further and he thought, yeah, it looks like there's something to this. So that was the foundation for my entire thesis was what's going on at these intersections? Is there some kind of mineralogical or geochemical control at these vein lamination intersections that's controlling the distribution of the coarse gold within the Cali laminated beds? And so I was investigating exactly what was happening there. And so at that stage, the Tanami, what the 
you know, style mineralization is it's, it's clearly an, an orogenic low gold system. We have sheeted quartz veins with coarse gold in them. Uh, we have nice folded stratigraphy, all of the classic things that, that you see. Um, but there was a few competing models on what was the control on the mineralization. Um, there's um, a pretty popular opinion and model that strongly advocated by uh, Nicholas Williams, which is the decarbonization model where the, the host rocks would have organic or reduced carbon in them. We have oxidizing fluids coming up through these structures. There's fluid wall rock interactions that's causing the oxidation of the carbon. We're producing CO2 or carbonate, and this is causing destabilization of the gold and fluids, and that's why we're precipitating gold. That is a great model, but it doesn't fully explain why you get gold at those specific um, intersections. And Nicholas has gone on to publish more papers on, on, on the topic. But also there's for the real sort of structural gurus out there, some there's some observations about the quartz veins and the and places they're they're stretched, they're boudinaged. And quite often where you form these boudins or where you have thinning of the quartz veins is where you have the coarse gold which also happens to be at the intersection of these laminations. So some people have proposed a model where you have these sort of changes in fluid pressure at these parts where the veins are being deformed. And so that's another competing model. The stock standard iron interactions with sulfide complexes. So for example, if you have gold traveling as a bisulfide complex in fluids, and it sees iron, then sulfur sees the iron, says, hello, let's make pyrite, and gold drops out. <laughs> and that's the, you know, the, the traditional sort of gold uh, precipitation mechanism where we have these sulfidation reactions with interactions with iron-rich units. And we see that in, in the Tanami where we have iron-rich rocks. So in this layer cake stratigraphy, we do have iron-rich rocks that have lots of sulfides in them, and we do see gold mineralization associated with those sulfides. Um, Laura Petrella at um, uh, CET UWA, she did her um, PhD on controls of mineralization at Tanami, and that's one of the mechanisms that she talked about quite a bit. Um, but the problem with the Cali laminated beds is iron poor compared to some of the other units, and we don't see a lot of sulfides in them. So that sulfidation reaction isn't important in the Cali laminated beds. It is in other parts of the deposit, but uh, again, it's a, it's a different mechanism. So that was my my whole thing was trying to figure out what was happening at these intersections. So I, when I went to site, I was actively trying to find these examples of where we saw this. The best place to do that, I first tried to go underground and see if I could find it in faces of the drive or backs or walls or whatever that, and I didn't really get to see exactly what I was looking for, but uh, I found if I was just walking around the, the ROM piles just before the ore is sent to the mill, that was a great place to, to go and actually see lots of veined material. And I was specifically looking for where I could see veins at a high angle to stratigraphy because that's where you have the, the intersections. So just the, some background about the geology of, of Cali itself. I mentioned is layer cake stratigraphy and it's all folded into an anticline. And there's a, a structural corridor or this set of sheeted veins that runs through this anticline that cross cuts it. And all of these veins have a similar orientation and dip to them. So they all have a 70 degree dip and they strike towards 70. And so they call them the 70-70 veins. And it's there, and the, the orientation of these veins is not straight down the actual plane of the anticline. It's off by a few degrees. So there's a sweet spot where the geometry of the anticline and the geometry of the veins sort of cut across each other. And that's what defines the ore body where you have these stratigraphy that's at a high angle that's intersecting the veins. So getting onto the ROM pad, I could see all the different vein orientations relative to layering. And I'd flip rocks over until I saw the orientation that I'm looking for. And you wouldn't necessarily always see VG or visible gold 
at uh, on the surface of the rock, but it wasn't until you cracked the rock open and have a look at it. Sure enough, it would be there whenever you saw a um, quartz vein and the laminations at high angle to each other. But the real sort of thing that I was looking for was any rocks on the ROM pad that actually cracked along the face of a vein. So if you imagine that it looking at a, a large uh, boulder and one side's flat and it is the vein surface, here you would have the ability to see the distribution of gold within the plane of the vein itself. And that's what I was ideally looking for to, for my samples because I wanted to see where that gold is and then prove that gold is occurring at the intersection with these coarse grain laminations, just to confirm that this relationship is statistically real and uh, significant. So you would have seen in my presentation some of these big rocks that I called mega samples. And yes. I like to think of them as like a wedding cake. So you have the, okay. the cake is the rock and the vein that's on the surface is like the icing on the cake. And I was cutting up the mega sample into little square columns that are your slices of cake that you'd hand out at, at a wedding. So the idea then was to look at what was happening in the wall rock immediately adjacent to the vein where we didn't have gold and where we did have gold and use things like Pierce-Elbin ratios and mineralogy and geochemistry variation to see what was happening. So did all that work and it wasn't until I, I got onto the SEM and Acadia didn't have an SEM, but Dalhousie University nearby in Halifax did. And I could only get on it at some weird hour at two in the morning kind of thing. Yep. So I remember being just full of Tim Hortons and just <laughs> as one is <laughs> and just scrolling around some of my thin sections and looking at the mineralogy of the veins. And these mineralized veins, apart from having nice big chunks of gold in them, are made up with not a lot of quartz. And when I say not a lot, I'm saying maybe 50% of the vein is actually quartz. And then there's a whole lot of other sort of gang minerals. There's lots of chlorite and some carbonate and albite in, in these veins. And of course, as you're scrolling around in the SEM, you're really excited by looking at the gold and the gold textures. And I was looking at this one sample and I saw this mineral that would look like it was growing off of the gold. It was quite euhedral and it had beautiful growth banding that indicated that it was becoming less and less dense as it grew. And I was like, what is this? This is weird. And so I zapped it and got some elements back. And it was a bit of a dog's breakfast of just major elements that and I'll, you know, I'll have to scratch my head and think of what this is. But the biggest difference between the sort of the high density part that was growing next to the gold and the furthest part of this that was growing that, that was furthest away when it terminated was the iron content. So it was iron rich close to gold and completely absent in iron further away. And it wasn't until I got back to the university and I was sort of figuring out the stoichiometry and realized that I was looking at, at epidote. So this was epidote oh. that was co-precipitating with gold. And as gold precipitated, the, the composition of the epitope became less and less rich with iron until it became in member clonozoazite with no iron at all and stopped growing. And that's where I came up with the model. I said, geez, this co-precipitation of epitope and gold is important and it's telling me something about the availability of iron. So then I turned my attention to the coarse grain layers themselves to actually figure out what they are, because in a traditional um, turbidite sequence, you, you don't normally get twin laminations of coarse grain layers in it. And so I had a look at what these coarse minerals were, and they're actually not an individual mineral, but my interpretation is that they're pseudomorphs of cordurites, so metamorphic cordurites that have been pseudomorphed by quartz and chlorite. And you can see th that, so they look like large sort of quartz grains, but they're actually made up of lots of tiny quartz grains that are surrounded by a rim of chlorite. So the fact that these are pseudomorph metamorphic cordurites tell you that these coarse grain layers were actually probably clay layers originally. So being coarse grain layers now, they're actually the finest grain layers during deposition and during mm -hmm. green schist metamorphism that baked them into these cordurites. 
The other thing that's diagnostic about these layers was the, the titanium mineral phases, which if you are in fresh rocks is dominated by ilmenite. But when you're right next to mineralization, you don't see any ilmenite at all. You just see rutile. And, and I found a, a few great examples where you could see an ilmenite that was half altered to rutile. So if you think about what ilmenite's made out of, the titanium oxide that has iron in it, mm -hmm. and not just any old iron, it's reduced iron. And so and I'm proposing in my model that hydrothermal alteration of ilmenite is releasing that iron that's going into the interacting with the hydrothermal fluids that's producing epidote that's destabilizing the gold out of mineralization or, or out of the fluids mineralizing the gold and then when your ilmenite runs out it's all been turned into rutile you've run out of your iron source and that and when the iron shuts off the gold shuts off and it you get zoocyte and that's the model so that was basically the the idea of the paper so from a practical exploration or production environment, the way that you would look at that is if you're drilling through, you've got a prospect and you're looking at Cali, or you're drilling through the stratigraphy and you have Cali laminated beds in your deposit, you see the twin laminations. So if you have lots of ilmenite in those, that means they haven't seen hydrothermal fluids. If you see lots of rutile, that means they've been altered and there's an opportunity that for that iron to have resulted in the precipitation of coarse gold. So, you know, you can drill through these sheet of quartz veins and because it's so nuggety, you, you know, with HQ or NQ drill hole, you're not necessarily going to get that nugget. But if you look at your titanium mineralogy of those titanium mineral phases, then yeah, that can be a good indicator. So that's the, the practical application of it. It explains why you can get gold precipitation in, in a fluid that doesn't have much sulfur in it. And it was a cool sort of story. Now, the other thing is that it, it ties into those boudins that I mentioned before, because yeah. where you see those boudins and, and they're associated with gold, that's at those coarse grain layers. But if you remember, those coarse grain layers were originally clay layers, and sort of in the boom of sequence, that would be just the sort of clay that's settling out. If you're going to deform a rock, that's the place where it's going to let go, is that is in those clay layers. And so that's why the boudins are forming at those intersections, is because of the composition of those those layers. It's different to everything else. So I think it's just a coincidence, um, but it's not necessarily the cause of, of the gold mineralization. And the boudin, that model has gone out of favor anyways, and for the other sort of controls, which are the sulfidation reactions and the titanium mineral interactions. So that's the idea of the of the paper. It wasn't until a few years later. So I, I finished writing that in 2005. And just a few years ago, completely unrelated, I was doing a deep dive into oxygen isotopes and uh, specifically silicate oxygen isotopes and orogenic systems. And I came across a paper by Ed Van Hees that he did on orogenic deposits in Yellowknife. And in two, I think it was a 2006 paper, and he came up with pretty much the exact same model that from observations that he saw from orogenic deposits there in, in the Northwest Territories. So it's nice when you have independently two people coming up with similar ideas on completely different deposits. So I'm not that crazy. So <laughs> <laughs> Some total, I'm not that crazy. Yeah. That is super itch. There were so many layers to that story. I didn't expect that we would get that deep so soon, but I don't even think I have a question coming out of that. That was very interesting. I particularly liked the role that the SCM played in it and how the sum total is that epidote was one of the, the keys to figuring out this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not something that's visually loggable like it's mm. very fine it, it was only under the sem that you can see the epidote it's not a huge component to the to what's in the veins I, i've since done hyperspectral imagery of the veins just trying to look specifically for epidote because as gold doesn't really have a, a swear response but epidote does so mm. you could almost use it as a proxy given this idea but it's so fine Damn. and there's not enough of it that, and it's also like, 
it's in the veins. So there's lots of aspectral minerals around it as well that could be swamping out the response. So I wouldn't on some kind of hyperspectral technology to try to sure. find epidotes. I have had a, a crack at using molar element ratios to try to quantify the titanium species. So if you imagine like a classic pure element ratio where you're looking at potassium re relative to aluminum over a conserved element and you can get your speciation. I've had an idea that in this reaction that titaniums conserve, like the in the ilmenite, we're not adding or removing titanium out of the system. It's just going from ilmenite to rutile, but we're losing the iron. So I was trying to you know come up with a, a molar iron titanium ratio, but there's other iron bearing phases. So you have right. to wrap your brain and 10 dimensional space and project from those minerals and then your coefficients get crazy and that's one for cliff to figure out but i was gonna um, say yeah yeah not for <laughs> a mere mortal <laughs> but having said that if you just do a real rough iron titanium ratio that doesn't do a horrible job because if you have relatively, or I guess technically it'd be a titanium iron ratio, if you have relatively high titanium relative to, to iron, and I know iron's mobile is moving around, but just at the deposit scale, the it's quite favorable to have higher titanium bearing rocks relative to iron because I think it plays such an important part in controlling the mineralization or the coarse gold mineralization. So yeah, those are some games that you can play, geochemistry. Oh my God, I love it. This is wild. Do you guys still work on Cali or is this just... So the DBS is still <laughs> one of Newmont's flagship operations. It keeps growing. As I mentioned before, there's a structural control where we have, you, you want to be in the hinge of the anticline. What's nice is in, you know, a few years ago, we found some uh, parasitic folds on the limbs. So those are now new deposits. And the Cali laminated beds that have that sort of right mineralogy to host gold mineralization, we found a deeper down another um, piece of the stratigraphy that's very geochemically similar to the Cali laminated beds. And that's called the, the lower Oron beds. And so you basically double your deposit by, by finding another favorably mineralized host units. So so these orogenic deposits, yeah, I know we were planning on talking about orogenics in general, but the nice thing about orogenics is that they grow. When you find them, they tend to be relatively small, but the nice thing about their geometry and the controls on the mineralization, the fact that they're so high grade, that they're easy to grow into giant world-class deposits. Uh, they're not bound by certain constraints that other deposit types might have. So no, it's we still work on Cali itself. This anticline is plunging, so it, it gets deeper and deeper every year. That's why exploration is so important in, in that district, because we're looking for repetitions or new ideas of other host units that could be nearby and mineralized. It's so interesting because I, I had a friend that was just all about structure. Everything is structural. That's where you find your ore deposit structure. And I've never professed to be like, you only find them geochemical type boundaries and fluid flow, yada, yada, yada. But yeah. I think your story, and particularly the orogenic story, tends to go for a combination between the two, which is really what you're talking Ab about here. Absolutely. You need both. So you need the right structures that are interacting with the right lithologies. It's at those intersections is where the magic happens. So you have to understand both. You can't just have a structural concept in mind and start drilling the structure. And if you're not drilling in the right rocks, you're, you're not going to find anything. So conversely, you could really love the Cali laminated beds and you can drill that anywhere you want. But if you don't have the, the structure in there bringing those fluids up, then you're not going to get anything. So you really need the intersection. Totally. And I think some other things that I really got out of what you're saying today, and then also just having gone through your presentation was that despite there being quite a bit of equations and phase diagrams, when it comes down to it, the mechanism by which that you are proposing for gold precipitation in this sense is actually quite simple and quite elegant. And I think it just speaks to the fact that we don't have to get crazy, keep reinventing the wheel. But if you're just going to say this is orogenic, it must be decarbonization or it must be sulfidation because it has these rocks or whatever. That's not necessarily the way to go either. It requires definitely a little bit more thought than just blanket applying a common mechanism. Yeah. And also there's 
a lot of research and new thinking in the space around the role of a colloidal gold. And when you run the calculations on, all right, so if we have our hydrothermal fluids have this concentration of gold in it, then you know how many million liters of fluids do I have to have and how much wall rock interaction? And so I think there's a growing acceptance and understanding of the role of colloids. And it was in Laura's uh, Petrella's PhD in some samples that she took from Tenemai that she saw amorphous silica within the, the, the quartz veins, which uh, is a sign of these soles or gels that carry these gold colloids, which is fantastic. And I was thinking how the, the whole titanium story, or specifically it's the iron story that's being uh, hosted in the titanium, how that relates to that mechanism. And folks who do deep dives into the mechanisms of precipitating colloidal gold, one of the big controlling factors is changes in pH. So these soles are very sensitive to pH, but there's but they're also sensitive to valence state of certain elements like iron, for example. So if you do have ferrous iron, then you can promote the precipitation of gold colloids. So I'm leaning less towards the direct um, association of the formation of epidote causing gold to destabilize rather than it's a byproduct of what's happening. And, and it's probably more of um, crystallization mechanism uh, that's being promoted by the liberation of the ferrous iron from the ilmenite. That's the actual true story that still sure. has that's still sitting up there and and hypothesis land, but that would be interesting to see if you could, if someone could prove that this iron uh, story can cause that much gold to crystallize or if it's some so, kind of pH change. So I'm from, well, you had the Cliff Stanley and the Dan Late Matthews experience. I'm from the Willie Williams Jones crew uh, at McGill. And uh, Willie's a huge proponent of, I mean, not blanket a proponent, obviously, but proponent mm -hmm. of colloidal gold and, and all this. And a lot of my former lab mates have gone on to do stuff like Laura's been doing. So I think it's always interesting how that, that comes around. There was a slight bit of a component of colloidal stuff in, in my own master's, but that's a completely different system. But yeah, no, I found this so interesting and different system as well. But we had Duncan McLeish come on the show maybe about a year ago now, and he was talking about his PhD thesis, which looked at the Bruce deposit in terms of having colloidal gold as a mechanism for these really mm -hmm. super high grade bonanza mm -hmm. areas. And it also happened in these structural areas as well. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. No, so cool. I world. love it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's colloidal. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We're not cool. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons is it on Sunday? Wow, we've talked about a lot and it's been super neat. I feel like every question that I had, you just plowed through in such a cohesive story. I love it. One last just wanted to chat about was, is there anything that you think in terms of conclusions that you were able to draw from this work that perhaps would help people better model the gold in terms, maybe even 3D modeling where it could be? Is there anything that you can see in and what you've done in the past that could be useful for this? Yeah. Like planning drill um, targets. It, it's tough. So orogenic deposits are notoriously nuggety. You mentioned Bruce Jack and Tanami and like these. It's so from a 3D modeling and predictability or, or predictability or even yeah. assaying, it's tough. And so sample representativity, good sampling procedures is is paramount. Unfortunately, you need to collect a lot of large samples. If uh, if you're doing a, a 30 gram fire assay, it's, you know, there it's that's an old, you know, argument in itself, 30 versus 50 gram fire assay, you know, like, so the, uh, you know, flux ratio versus sample representativity and grind size. So you have to make sure you understand the, you know, the nature of your deposit and the nuggets and do your sampling nonograms and do all that hard, hard work and any, so from a modeling point of view, directly of the gold is tough and you can spend a lot of money doing multiple fire assays or doing expensive large assay um, techniques. 
so anything that you can do using the geochemistry or the mineralogy to give you an upper hand on the modeling confidence, that'll help. And so I think that's one of the learnings is that when the gold analysis itself is dubious, you need to look at other things. Classically, we'd look at pathfinder elements, things like arsenic, for example, loves to hang out with, with gold and orogenic systems, but that's when gold is associated with sulfides. And here, the calilaminate beds, we don't see that. We do have layers in that layer cake stratigraphy, some strat units that are very high in arsenic. They're not mineralized with gold, they're just arsenic-rich layers. And, and so if you started getting excited and, and drilling these arsenic-rich layers, thinking you're going to make a discovery, you're going to go broke. So you have to really understand your gold associations. That's when you get into exploratory data analysis space and look at different gold signatures and what elements are hanging out, things like PCA and factor analyses. Do your whole rock geochemistry, get all those pathfinder elements, and you might see some signatures that, that cor correspond with gold. And then take gold out of the equation and see if those samples still come back as having a mineralized signature without gold being a part of it. And then you're already ahead of the game of predicting where your ore zones are just by using the multi-element geochem. Now, elements are hosted in, in minerals. And so doing mineralogy can shortcut the, the process, but you know, mineralogy techniques tend to be slower and more expensive unless you're doing rapid things like uh, shortwave infrared. And so that's something that we were looking at. Is there any kind of smoking gun for where we have gold mineralization within the Cali laminated beds? And the jury's still out on there. I don't. So going back to Nicholas Williams' work on the decarbonization model, there's decarbonization all over DBS. These rocks are absolutely hammered. And so there's one unit that sits just above the mineralized zone called the magpie schist. And it's called the magpie schist because black and white zebra stripes and it's beautiful decarbonization bandings along uh, pervasive layers. And uh, so you can really see that these rocks have seen a lot of hydrothermal alteration. Trying to find sort of the, the, the signature within that sort of broad scale venue of alteration to say this is where the gold is like trying to pick the difference between a sample that's running 100 grams per ton and a sample that's running 100 ppb per ton using hyperspectral data is very hard because the alteration processes are pretty much identical for each of those cases mm. both of them produced one produced bonanza grade one produced low grade you know but hyperspectrally how can you tell how how can you tell the difference is it's very tough and the other thing is you can look at composition of, of the chlorite, for example. And in this case, I find that iron-rich rocks tend to make iron-rich chlorites. And so it's not necessarily a proxy or for mineralization. It tells you that you're in a favorable unit, but you can't use it to say that this as an indicator of what the gold grade is going to be. So ultimately, you're going to have to take good quality samples, do good quality gold analyses. But as far as predicting where that mineralized zone is, there's a few tools that, that we have. Fascinating. Oh my God. Now I'm just like, I want to just see it all. I want to see all the data. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in conclusion, then just talking now about your daily monthly job at Newmont as their principal geochemist. I mean, it sounds like you do to me, but in terms of what you did for your honor thesis and with all this different analysis that you did and then different schools of thought that you brought up and were able to factor in on something that it was actually a plausible hypothesis for what you're seeing. Do you get to do things like this all the time at work or is work a little bit less shiny and bright than this? Yeah, I guess more recently, maybe within the last five years or so, uh, whenever you know, an opportunity like this comes up, you know, instead of trying to do it myself or do it in-house, always try to get a, a student onto it. And so building quite a few relationships with different universities. And at any given time, we probably have a PhD and a master's and an honors project going on different things at, at any given time. Coming up with those and like soft touch managing those from a distance, just being an enabler of those is a big part of, of the role rather than actually going in and sitting on the SCM full of Tim Hortons myself. Um, <laughs> 
But the, the role that I'm in now, even though my office is in Australia, it's a global support role. So uh, it's a lot of travel to all of our operations and exploration projects um, around the world. But so again, it's a lot of about building relationships with people, networking. It's a lot of training because an organization the size of Newmont, we try to get all geoscientists having a certain level of knowledge in exploration, geochemistry and sampling best practices and all that stuff. So way back when uh, Nigel Rafford and Owen Lavin were running the show, they both retired around the same time, but one of their sort of legacies was that they wanted to put together a in-house geochemistry training course for early career geoscientists within Newmont. And it was their vision for it to be like a university level course, but being very hands-on, they just didn't want to be a talking head in front of a PowerPoint deck, uh, but it was actually getting into the field, looking at regolith and soil profiles and collecting stream sediment samples and using portable instruments on drill core and, and using data sets. And so it's a very hands-on course. It's grown and matured since they they left, but we still do it. It probably occupies about 20% of my my time every year is running these chemistry training courses. They're kind of broken down in, into modules specific to certain topics. So you don't have to spend two weeks away from your day job and you can do it in more bite-sized pieces and managers prefer that, of course. And I'm so. ready to take two weeks from my day <laughs> job to see what the, you know, the course is. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> We'll have to get you first. That's right. Yeah. So the, the initiation. So yeah, exactly. It's a vetting process. <laughs> so so training is a big part. There's the project support component, which is obviously pretty key. And then the real fun stuff is just staying on top of and understanding the new and emerging technologies that are out there. So that's there's always new tools and new ideas, and uh, so we we try to. Be aware of what those are and some that float to the top will will run trials and then put them forward for recommend to the to the sites that this might be a tool that adds value and so that's uh, another part of of the gig that sounds fun yeah well, very cool i just i want to thank you so much for being here and for talking about all this with us i think it was really fun it was fun for me hopefully it's fun for everybody else that's listening I just want to thank everybody out there for listening to Geochemistry and a big thanks to Jeff Bigelow for being on the show, dishing some great tea that we will talk about later and, <laughs> and talking about this project. It's, I mean, what, so started in 2005 and it's still ongoing really. So that's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Thank you to our sponsor LKI Consulting and to It's Water and Coma Media for our music. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you all next month.